how easy is it to to elevate someone's status or even to elevate our own status? Maybe our recognition, maybe our 15 minutes of fame. Think of a lot of different ways that you can get your name out there, if it were. YouTube has become a huge, huge uh, benefactor in making people famous that would have no shot of being famous before. There's a guy, I don't even know his name. All I know him by is the Numa Numa man. On, he does the Numa Numa video. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but this is about maybe five years old uh, with this. But it is this, by all accounts and purposes, would never be a celebrity. He is not attractive. He's a geek. And he's sitting here at his computer with a, a webcam at him. And he has a European song playing. And during this European song, he lip syncs it. For a little bit, and then just the, does this little dance, and it became a huge hit on YouTube. So much so, he was getting so much recognition that he decided to try it again and put together another one. Well, the second one was a flop, and I kind of wonder if that's that's how it is sometimes. Is that we hit our moment, and it be, elevates us, and then what? It's really easy in some ways to be elevated, but how do you stay there and? You know, is it worth, worth even trying? Is that something we, we long for? Do we long for recognition? Do we long for it in our lives? We often, we often praise someone when they do a good job. And I think that's a good thing. But I've also seen that work adversely. Because that praise, with that praise comes a little bit of good feeling in myself. If I've done a good job and you come and say, you've done a good job, now, then... Part of me wants to do a good job again, but not for the sake of doing a good job. It's more so to hear the words of praise. Let me illustrate this a little different way. I I grew up going to a camp, Black Mesa Bible Camp, many of you are familiar with. And at the camp there, they have an award called the Discipleship Award. The Discipleship Award, its whole purpose is to honor one of the campers who is most Christ-like, who serves like Christ. Well, that's kind of a big thing, especially for us at a Black Mesa Bible Camp. We wanted to be the most spiritual. And that award basically says, you this week were the most spiritual. And that's just a good thing. But do you strive to win this award? I always thought that was kind of an oxymoron. If I tried to work to be the servant award, did it negate my purposes? I had a friend that I think it did. He worked really hard all week. Every time he was mopping floors, he made sure, you know, if something needed to be done, someone was watching. And he ended up winning Discipleship Award that year, not because he deserved it, but because he was in the right place to do the works, and he got the praise for it. He, he admitted it later, and it just wasn't necessarily a good thing, but don't we sink that recognition? Even when we do good, we, we seek that a lot of times, and that can be our motivator rather than what is truly taking place. In the third chapter of Acts, Peter and John were on their way uh, to the temple to worship. They came to a lame, lame man sitting by the gate, uh, begging for alms, and they, they approached him. He asked them for money, and you probably remember their, their response, several, several I can't say that, silver or gold, we don't have, but what we do, get, what we do have, we will give you. What does he say? What do they say next? In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. 
And the guy gets up, his, his feet are restored, his ankles are restored. Whatever ailment he had that couldn't allow him to walk, he gets up, not only gets up, leaps, praising God, just with the joy coming. Well, that miracle caused a problem for the chief priests and elders who tried to crucify Jesus. So they decided that they'd have to do something to silence Peter and John and the other disciples. Listen here to what chapter 4, verse 2 says. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. They were constantly proclaiming the message to everyone who would listen. And crowds of people were flocking to them. So Peter and John are brought before the officials. And they are asked this question, By what power or what name did you do this? How were you able to heal this lame man? What a question. I mean, if, if I'm looking at that in my own agenda, that is the springboard to my career. You see that? They did something spectacular, and then the big dogs noticed it. And they said, how'd you do that? That's a springboard for a career if I ever saw one. That's one of those that you're just like, you're waiting for, and you just are able to say, well, let me tell you, I did this and I did that and I made these come together and everything and thus the advancement of my career or my status. My father-in-law has worked as an engineer for his whole life and he recently has changed jobs to where now he's, uh, he go, he's, goes out like he always has really and went to find jobs to do, find the work uh, to bring into the company. But the difference is this time is that normally he brings that work in and then he goes and works on it. Now all he's doing is bringing the work in. And he just won a very big project. And part of me wonders how hard it would be to not just pat yourself on the back. Maybe, and he has a right to do so to an extent. But when we do something good, what is our reasoning for it? When they were asked this, they, they have done something great. By what power have you done this? Their response was just amazing. Because he points to Christ. He says, it is not by power of our own names or anything like that, but it is the power of Jesus Christ. In, by the way, you crucified. Yeah, that guy you crucified, it's by his power that we did this. Now, I want you to notice something real fast about how they, how they did that, is I would consider that humility, pointing to someone else. But this is a bold humility. Too often in our world, we're, we're surrounded by a false humility. You know, people kind of do something and then they shy away from it, saying, well, not, not really. They downplay it, maybe even a self-martyrdom to an extent of humility. But the humility that these men had was a bold humility because they said, yes, we did that in the name of Jesus. They pointed to the right source and did not discredit anything that just happened. They were bold in what they did. And that it was powerful. I think this is kind of how the uh, early church viewed themselves. They were, they were the diamond in the rough. They were something different. Something to people questioned. Because the world didn't work like this normally. Society didn't work like this. The Jewish religion didn't work like this. The early church had something that was completely different. There's a book came out, I think, uh, about 20 years ago, maybe a hair earlier than that, called Resident Aliens. 
It talks a lot about that, of that the church was aliens. They were the weirdos because they did things different. But this is how they viewed themselves. They had a power source that people needed to understand. And that created a lot of interesting thoughts among people, I guess. But the passage that I really, really want to focus on this morning is just after that, in Acts 4, verse 32. I think whenever we, we enter into this passage, this whole chapter has been just a great little, I've given you an overview of what's happened. It's a great story, but I think it kind of comes to a culmination with these few verses right near the end of what really is happening and what God wants his church to be. Let's read Acts 4.32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that they were owned, or that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. These verses here relate three, I believe, three essential ingredients for the Lord's church. Then and now, that three essential ingredients. Number one is unity. Number two is generosity. And three is a great witness. Nothing is said here about doctrine. The book of Acts really doesn't deal a whole lot with the doctrine of a lot of things. It deals with getting the word out there and showing what the church truly is. So the first one, unity. All the believers were united in heart and in mind. Do you think it's significant that they have both the terms there? Have you ever been united with someone just in mind only? I don't know, I think uh, a lot of jobs are like that, to be honest. I will, I will do my job as the, my bosses see fit, but that's, that's about it. Or have you ever been united with someone in heart, but not in mind? That's pretty easy, too. I have the same goal with these people. I have the same heart, the same love. It's really easy to come across this in church, is that we all have the same love, but our minds, we have completely uh, different ideas on how it should be accomplished. Same way the job, you can have completely different ideas on the heart of the matter but have the unified mind, I think it's interesting that all the believers were united in heart and in mind. Sometimes I, I, I just kind of sit back and dream and wonder, what would happen if this were true today? If all the believers, let's just say in America, were united in heart and mind, were to pool their resources together, their faith and their testimony, pull, pull it all together, what kind of an impact would that have on this country? I mean, can you imagine, let's just say, I, I don't know an exact number, number's been thrown around depending on what you call Christian, uh, 50 million is a possibility up to, it's, I think 500 million is one of them that I saw of numbers of Christians in the America. Let's just say 100 million. 100 million people come together, they pool their resources together, they pool their faith, they pool their testimony. What kind of impact would that have on this, on this country? I don't know, I think it would be fascinating just to see so much in that world would even happen almost overnight, it would seem. 
And sometimes as I think about that, I, I wonder, well, maybe not on the grand scale, grand scale like that. Maybe I can't, I can't affect that. But maybe I can affect this community. What if this church here, this congregation here, were to be united in heart and mind? You know, let, let's even be liberal and, and bring, bring those that have left and pull them into this. This idea, the 100, 150 people that we might have in this, we are united in heart and mind. We pull our faith together. We pull our testimony together. What kind of impact would that have on this community? Wouldn't that be an impressive witness? Things that were said in that scripture, there is no needy among us. Not because we're a rich elite, but because we take care of each other. C.S. Lewis, uh, a number of years ago, wrote a classic entitled The Screwtape Letters. In it, he imagines Screwtape as being the devil and his nephew Wormwood as a little demon who had uh, been assigned the responsibility of recruiting members for the kingdom of hell. In one chapter, Screwtape is, is talking to Wormwood. He says, you'll find that the church is fertile soil. One of the best places to re- find recruits for hell is in the church. I don't know if you've read this book, but it challenges a whole lot of your thinking. thought C.S. Lewis did a really good job with it. But now here's his advice to Wormwood. Keep them bickering over programs, procedures, monies, organizations, personal hurts, misgivings. Keep them bickering. Whatever you do, don't let them see the banners wave, because if they ever see the banners wave, you'll lose them forever. Just, just think about that. Keep them bickering about anything and then whenever he says but don't let them see the banners wave he's just talking about the unity that brings a, a banner uh in in military terms whenever a banner is brought that banner represented the unit and whether it was the horsemen or whether it was the archers or whatever the banner was brought and whenever the king wanted to send a certain group out he waved their banner and that banner then that whole group would go as a unified force. So whenever C.S. Lewis is saying, don't let them see the banner wave. Don't let them see the unity of Christ. Keep them bickering. C.S. Lewis in some ways was saying, the secret to carrying out the Great Commission is that when our vision is fixed on Jesus and we are so caught up on Him, we won't have time to bicker. We don't have to worry about our little hurts. When we're caught up in carrying his banner to the lost and dying world, then the church will march on and triumph. I thought that was well-worded. But it wasn't just about unity that this, these early Christians had. Even more so, they had generosity. the second part of that verse, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. Does that bother you? They felt that what they owned was not their own, but they shared everything they had. That kind of bothers me. I mean, it's, we are natural hoarders of our own stuff. There are some things that we are just willing to give out. Many of us are willing to give money to, to organizations, whatnot else, but if someone were to need something that just meant a lot to us, something that has been in the family for years, we have our excuses of whatever it may be. 
we, we are hesitant to let those go, to let those things go. And I don't know, I got a lesson in this whenever I was in college. I went to Harding University, and, and while at Harding, I got, learned a lot of things, but, you know, one of those personal property ideas you had, to, you had to establish because I was stuck in a room with a stranger. I knew him as my best friend, but still, we'd never roomed together, and it was my stuff, your stuff, and then some things that we shared, and that was okay. Well, then, halfway through my junior year, I go home for Christmas, and our house burns down. I lose absolutely everything that I had to my name. And it kind of, I was distraught at first because I had all this stuff. You know, we would kind of sit around and every once in a while just go, oh, the family pictures. Oh, my quilt that I made. Oh, and just go through these different things. And yeah, that through the process, we did kind of realize, though, that it was just stuff. We still had our lives. Everything was still okay. That was just stuff, and it could be replaced. And in time, we replaced it. But I think I had a little bit different idea of stuff then at that point. I kind of hope that idea still continues. But whenever I went back to Harding for that next semester, I I had a new car. It was new to me. I guess it was a new used car. And anytime someone needed needed a vehicle for anything, I didn't hesitate one second to reach in my pocket and throw them the keys. I'm not sure I would have done that before the fire, but I realized, you know what? When you don't have it, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And I, I hope that those things have transpired into my life and continued. But I've got a new appreciation for stuff. Or maybe, maybe it's not just stuff that we have for our homes and, and our lives. Maybe it's our, our building here. I've seen a building turn into more of a sanctuary in so many congregations that this is a place where you can't do this, can't do that, can't bring food or drink in. You can't really use it, is the way I interpret it, except on Sunday mornings, then it can be used. But other than that, I'm sorry. Before I went to university uh, at, there in Canyon to be the youth minister, I was told uh, of the story of the carpet in the gym. It wasn't too many years before that they just put new carpet in. And I was looking at it saying, well, it could really use a cleaning. And one of the deacons came to me and he pointed at a spot in the carpet that had an obvious stain. He said, you want to know the story of that? I said, sure. He said, when we got, first got this carpet, there were many members that started bickering about what can and can't be done in here. He goes, we built this building to be used. He said, so while no one was looking... Well, a few of us were here. I took my, pot of, or my cup of coffee, poured it on the carpet. And he said, first stain's done. Now let's use this building. I was like, for one, I don't think too many of the, the others knew about that. He just told me, but I was like, what wisdom there? I mean, yeah, he could have gotten shot by someone else. But there's a wisdom there of saying, you know what? It's going to happen. Let's use this building as I mentioned in class and it was just mentioned in the announcement, this building was used at a purpose that we don't normally have for. The uh, group of AIM students were traveling, traveling home and their bus broke down. My dad calls me up saying, hey, you know, would you be willing to, to house them if they, you know, if they needed a place uh, to come and crash for a couple hours? I was like, gladly. 
I knew I didn't have to call anyone in this congregation because I knew y'all would feel the same way there. And so we were able to put about 30, 40 people in here, fed them some food. And one of the students came to, uh, as Pat and Pam were there, and they came, uh, came to them and said, well, you know, we just thank y'all for opening up this building and letting us use this. And I believe it was Pat just said, honey, this is, this is your building as much as ours. What wisdom. This is. This isn't just our building. This is the church's building. And if someone is in need of it, great. What kind of generosity. When the church saw the empty tomb, the resurrected Lord, it changed them. They became excited about what he had. And, and through that process, they became generous. They were probably, the things that they were probably concerned about before seemed to kind of wane in comparison to a newfounded concern in telling the lost world about the resurrected Christ and in the process taking care of those in need. I often, a lot of times, let my stuff get in the way of the message I have to present. And that scares me because this is just stuff. Their generosity exploded, and it was even contagious. There's a book that I just finished reading, The Lost Letters of Pergamum. And in this book, there's, there's this idea of, uh, of, it's really, I guess, of the early church and how they are infiltrating into the community. And a high-ranking official for this city gets kind of invited into participating in one of the worship services. And more so for the study of it, he does it. And as, as he goes, he realizes that this, these people don't follow social codes and social norm of the high class having their place and the lower class having their place. But even more so, they take care of each other. And that inspires him to be generous as well. A really fascinating book, but that's not the last of it. More so, more than just having generosity and unity... They had a great witness. Listen to this. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's blessing was upon them all. They had a great, great testimony. And it was more so, like, if you see a whole church that is completely united, that is one thing, that you're impressed by that. But when that church shows, has great generosity, that right there is a great witness and testimony for the world. They saturated Jerusalem with that message. And then Judea, and then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Here and there, in the alleys, and the byways, on the streets, and the homes, and the catacombs, wherever God led them, they were telling one another, have you heard? Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He has conquered death. He gives us everlasting life. Have you heard the blessed message of Jesus? The powerful message was not from just elite Christians, though. And it wasn't just from the apostles and, and the Barnabases and the Lukes and, the, and these that we consider maybe elites, all, even though those were just ordinary people themselves. But it was from every person in their community. They no longer had any reason to store things up. They no longer had any reason to hoard their own stuff. You may have seen the bumper sticker or the t-shirt that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. 
The Christian version of it I always like whenever they Christianize it. He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's a good point. They sensed an urgency in spreading the gospel because they understood the fragility of life. This is something that they had to get out. We may not get the chance to be unified tomorrow. We may not get the chance to spread generosity tomorrow. We may not get the chance to be a great witness. Does that spark you today? It sparked them. When they heard their mission, they saw what they needed to do. They didn't let petty things get in their way. They became unified. They became generous, and they became a great witness. This, I believe, is what the church was created to do. Are we doing it? Is that part of our our life? Is that our understanding of church here? Or does it just stop the walls? Are we going to be unified so much that this community takes notice? I think that's the call of Christ here and the call of this scripture. Let's be the church God created, that God intended us to be. If you're in need of anything, if you're in need of this church in any way, this, know that this is more than just the body that meets here. This is a God's church. And if you're not part of that, we would welcome you in the waters of baptism. Or if you are in need of any other thing, please come forward as we stand and sing.